friends, as of today, we are just two weeks away from May the 14th and 15th, and Pastor Patrick Garcia's vision message on our future together. I hope you're protecting one of those two dates on your calendar for weekend worship at Crossroads, May 14th, Saturday, May 15th, the Lord's Day. And by the way, just as a reminder, next weekend is Mother's Day. And have I ever got the perfect gift idea for the mother in your family? Next weekend, our preschoolers are going to be singing in all of our services, and our youth choir is going to bless us with a pre-service concert of about 30 minutes. So next week, plan to come to church 30 minutes early. If you come at 9 o'clock, you want to come at 8.30. If you come at 10.45, you want to come 30 minutes earlier at 10.15 next weekend. I'm not kidding. These kids, these students will knock your socks off. So don't miss it. Rise up 30 minutes early. Get to Crossroads 30 minutes ahead of our usual start time for this dynamic music. And as I said, don't even bother to wear socks to church next week because they're going to be knocked off anyway. <laughs> so today, as Cy reference, we begin a series of messages from 2 Timothy. People sometimes ask, how do you pastors decide what to preach? Well, mostly it depends on the perceived needs of our church family. And several months ago, we knew that we would be in a season of leadership succession in the month of May. So it seemed good for us to be in 2 Timothy throughout the month of May, and we're calling this next series of messages simply Next. And the reason we're calling it Next is because 2 Timothy was penned by a veteran preacher, the Apostle Paul, who knew that he would very soon be executed. And so he writes this second of two pastoral letters to Timothy, a younger leader, who probably had a little bit of anxiety about his own future. Now, the application to us here at Crossroads is just a little bit off. Since this veteran preacher is not facing a beheading, at least that I know of, although uh, I have not seen the program for the night of celebration on May the 20th, and the planners have promised some surprises. And then my successor, Patrick, unlike Timothy, is not the least bit anxious about the future. But 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's 14 letters in the New Testament, written about 25 years after his conversion, and many scholars consider 2 Timothy to be Paul's last will and testament. And it reads like a last will and testament. A last will and testament is filled with imperatives. It's filled with directives. I want this to happen. I want that to happen, this to go there, that to go over here. That's the nature of a last will and testament. And Paul wrote this while he was in prison, in chains. The first time Paul was imprisoned in Rome, he wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon before he was acquitted and released. But now this is the second imprisonment in Rome. Paul was arrested during a reign of terror that was unleashed by the evil Roman emperor Nero, and thousands of Christians were being persecuted, tortured, and put to death. Paul turned out to be one of them. 
According to non-biblical sources, Paul was beheaded in 68 A.D. So at this time, at this time in biblical history, being a Christian was dangerous. It was sometimes deadly. It was easier and safer not to get involved with Jesus, not to get involved with His followers. And as a result of the persecution, Paul had been virtually abandoned in Rome. He's in prison there, and he's been abandoned because the word spread. Paul had been condemned, and very few people came to his aid. Many of his friends found reasons to avoid him, and only Luke, only Dr. Luke was with Paul in his last days. And 2 Timothy is written from a Roman dungeon while Paul awaited execution. He's on death row here when he writes this. And the fact that it's Paul's final communication gives, I think, some added weight to his words. But Paul's purpose in writing was not so much to prove that he was prepared for what was coming next as it was to make sure that Timothy was prepared for what was coming next. And so over and over again, Paul charges Timothy with these imperatives, these directives, and this is the one we're looking at today. Do not be ashamed. Stand up for Jesus. And Paul calls Timothy here in chapter 1 to be steadfast, to be bold, to be forthright, to be firm in his faith, regardless of the challenges. And the fact is, we have some of the same challenges to deal with that Timothy did. And so, 2 Timothy is very relevant to us as we live today. For example, Timothy was experiencing depression. Now, I'm not talking here about clinical depression. I'm just talking about being down, being discouraged, being depressed in that sense. And I think there are several reasons for it. One is that Timothy was young. He was a second-generation believer whose mother and grandmother had taught him the things of God, but his father, his father seems to be checked out spiritually. His father was likely not a believer, and that can hinder a young man's confidence. That can hinder a young man's spiritual development and leadership. Well, we also know that he had some health problems. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul references his stomach issues and his frequent illnesses. And you know as well as I do that chronic sickness can cause a person to be down. And I think there's also a possibility that Timothy may have had some secret sins in his past before becoming a Christian because Paul calls Timothy to purity, and he charges him to flee the evil desires of youth, and he writes to him about the value of a clear conscience. And nothing messes with a person's conscience like the sins of the flesh. And maybe most of all, Timothy just knew intuitively that he was no Apostle Paul. There's no evidence that Timothy had miracle-working power like the Apostle Paul. There's no evidence that Timothy had an exceptional mind like the Apostle Paul. No evidence that he had these exceptional public speaking gifts like Paul. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds him that God can use ordinary people just as well as giants of the faith. So, if you have family faith deficits in your past, 
If you've got health problems in the present, if you've got a checkered past, or you're riddled with feelings of inadequacy and inferiority, just realize these things do not have to hold you back from becoming the person your heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus and the empowering Holy Spirit can make of you. Don't let anyone, don't let anything lock you into your personal limitations or your past failures. You have value. You have worth. Jesus says so, and He will use you if you're willing to serve Him. Well, Timothy was also experiencing opposition. After all, Paul's in prison for preaching Christ, and no doubt Timothy's wondering if he might be next. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, Paul makes a reference to his persecutions and sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then he added, for Timothy's benefit, and I think for our benefit too, verse 12, he says, in fact, Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But Paul charged Timothy to stand up. Stand up to opposition. But here's how you stand up to opposition as a Christian. Fight the good fight. Here's how you do it. Holding on to faith and a good conscience. In other words, you withstand opposition to your Christian faith with inner strength, with inner resources. And Paul encouraged Timothy not to be defensive when he was opposed. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but here's what you do. Set an example for the believers, he said. And so that's what Paul warns Timothy to do when you meet opposition. And then he details what the opposition is. And here we have it in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is a long list. I want you to look at this list. Paul says, Timothy, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. So Paul and Timothy are living in the last days. The last days started on the day of Pentecost and proceed right up to the present. And we are in the last days of the last days. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful. Sound like a presidential campaign. Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So, friends, this warning is not just for Timothy. I'm telling you, in America right now, we're facing the stiffest opposition to the truth of God and the stiffest resistance to the grace of God that I have seen in my lifetime. So Timothy was dealing with depression. He was dealing with 
opposition, and finally he was experiencing desertion. Some of the brothers were so intimidated by Rome's opposition, they'd given up. And Paul wrote about it in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. And so here's Paul who's talking about desertion. And Timothy's feeling the impact of that because of Paul's imprisonment. And toward the end of the letter, Paul pleads in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Timothy, do your best. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, one of Paul's co-workers, Demas, because he has loved this world, has deserted me. Only Luke is with me. And then in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, he adds, at my first defense, in other words, at my first trial, no one came to my support. He didn't have anybody testifying in his behalf. But everyone deserted me. And then he adds this, may it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. So, can you be comforted? Can you be content? Can you be steadfast knowing that the Lord is standing at your side to give you strength when it seems that all others have abandoned you? Or does desertion by others deflate your zeal? Are you that exceptional person in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your circle of influence? Are you that special, exceptional person who can stand alone as a Christ follower that heartens and strengthens and inspires and leads others. In the face of these challenges, Paul appeals to Timothy. Timothy, do not be ashamed. He says it no less than four times, three times in chapter 1, once in chapter 2. Do not be ashamed. Stand up for Jesus. And then to fortify this charge to Timothy, and for the benefit of all of us gathered here today, Paul provides the benefit of his example about how to do it, how to have this dynamic faith in the midst of discouraging circumstances. And here it is. First of all, be grateful. Have a grateful heart. And this is so foundational to a resilient faith. Look at Paul's words here in chapter 1. He starts out. He says, I thank God. He's on death row. He's not having a pity party for himself. He says, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did. And his heritage was a Jewish heritage. His forefathers were faithful, godly uh, Jewish men. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline right out of the box. Paul says, Timothy, 
I thank God for the faith of my forefathers. And I thank God for you. And I thank God for your unpretended faith. And I thank God for the sincere faith of your grandmother and your mother. And I thank God for the gifts that he's given you that are devoted to building up the faith of others. And Timothy, I thank God for giving us both a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So how do you answer the question, is it worth it? Is it worth holding on to sincere faith when you are facing a life-threatening disease? Is it worth holding on to sincere faith when you're being verbally abused or ridiculed in the workplace every day? Is it worth holding on to sincere faith when your spouse has been unfaithful to you? Is it worth, is it, worth it to hold on to sincere faith when your situation doesn't improve in spite of your prayers and even gets progressively worse? Well, like Timothy, this question has to be answered in the context of your family. Is the salvation of your family worth the battle? That's what we're talking about here. Is your witness to your own family worth the energy required for you to be unashamed, to stand up for Jesus? A recent study of Christian and non-Christian families revealed that in America today, most young adults following Christ came from one of two kinds of homes non-Christian homes where they were converted in their teens through an effective local church youth ministry, or they came from devoted Christian homes where they grew up loving Jesus because they saw a mom and dad who modeled a love for Jesus that permeated their lives. Now listen to this conclusion. The fewest young adult believers came from homes that were nominally Christian. Now, I find it incredibly sobering that in America right now, the chances are better for a child growing up in a non-Christian home to become a committed Christ follower than for a child growing up in a home that has a token, indifferent, apathetic, lukewarm, shallow, take-it-or-leave-it commitment to Jesus Christ. Folks, right now, I'm so stoked, and that's the right word, stoked, about what's happening in our youth ministry at Crossroads. I want you to look at these guys up here on the screen. This is an incredible team that the Lord has brought together at Crossroads for such a time as this. The guy at the top in the middle, Daryl Marin, fairly new, in his first year with us, our family pastor, Thank you for the applause. I take it that that was from his wife, Jen. <laughs> Daryl heads up our family ministries program and department. Ross Langston, there on the left. You saw his wife, Nikki, make announcements today. Ross and Jacob Stewart down there with a beautiful smile. There are high school pastors. Mark Silen, our Long-time, experienced middle school pastor. Andrew Bondurant, our children's pastor. Folks, these men right here, 
and their coworkers are taking family ministry to the next level in our church right now. And there's a dual emphasis on partnering with moms and dads to disciple the kids at home and at the same time having a compelling student ministry outreach at church. We want to reach those kids from non-Christian homes through our youth ministry. And we want to take our kids that come from committed Christian homes to the next level in their leadership. Pray for these pastors. Support them in any way you can. I'm telling you, too many kids today are being allowed to make their own decision to forego any kind of Bible teaching, any kind of spiritual development. And a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old can criticize the church program or they don't like one of their youth leaders and mom and dad just fall into line with that negative thinking. Listen, listen. Who's in charge here? Who's spiritually leading in your home? I tell you, I have, I have, could have been easily distracted from the Lord and the Bible and the church and youth ministry during my junior high and high school years. But my mother and dad decided that that was a hill that they would die on. And I stood a full head taller than my dad when I was 17 years old. And I was an athlete. And I thought maybe I had outgrown some of what was going on at church. And my parents stood up to me, and they stood up for Jesus. And as a result, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for them. Will your children one day rise up and call you blessed? Your children are watching you to find out they want to know if Jesus matters. Do you worship faithfully? Do you serve gladly? Does your faith have a vitality to it, or are you, are you just sleepwalking spiritually, going through the motions? Is Jesus real enough to change how you talk to each other and how you treat each other in the family? Does the Bible factor into the way you handle challenges in your home, the way you deal with problems in your home? Be thankful for the people in your life like Lois and Eunice in our text who helped Timothy not to be ashamed and to stand up for Jesus and then be that kind of person in your family, in your home that inspires loyalty to Jesus in your sons and daughters. Be grateful. Secondly, he says, be hopeful. So being grateful is foundational. But there's more. Here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and following, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Our Savior, Christ Jesus, has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher and that is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. So Paul says, Timothy, suffering may last for a while in this life, but Timothy, don't fail to take the long view. We can be hopeful. 
because Jesus destroyed death and he brought life and immortality and hope to light up our lives in dark times. Here's a picture of a couple in our church, wonderful, faithful couple, uh, Harry and Carol Ann Lukens. They come on Sunday, or rather Saturday night. I think a couple of weeks ago, Patrick referenced them. Now, unless there's divine intervention in response to our prayers for Harry, he's in his last days of life. He's not in a prison in Rome, but he's been carrying on a several-year battle with leukemia. But Kayleen and I went to see them last week and sat down with them, and I wish that I could have captured the look on Harry's face, and I wish I had recorded his words to play for you because he is looking forward to what's next. And it's because he's possessed of a hope that's steadfast and sure. He knows in whom he has believed and is persuaded that he's able to guard what Harry has entrusted to him for that day. That is the day of his death. I was reading a few years back uh, the account of a debate back in the days when debates were more frequent. It was a debate between Alexander Camel and Robert Owen. Alexander Camel was a brilliant Christian apologete, um, think C.S. Lewis, very bright, very articulate. Robert Owen, likewise, was a communist, skeptic, freethinker, atheist, unbeliever. During their debate, there was a break, and during the break, they slipped out a side door, and outside the place where the debate was happening, there was a cemetery. And Robert Owen wanted to gain a psychological advantage because he was losing badly. And he went over and propped his foot up disrespectfully on the headstone of one of the grapes. And he looked at Campbell and he said, you know, I'm not like a lot of people. He said, I don't fear death. And Campbell looked right back at him and said, you may not fear it, but do you have any hope in it? And the answer is no, he didn't. You may not fear it, but do you have any hope in it? Well, we have hope in death. So that means that whatever we experience in this life, and there are some tragic things that people have to deal with, we can be hopeful. And I'll tell you this, if you're grateful and you are hopeful, you're not going to be ashamed, and you're going to stand up for Jesus regardless of what's going on around you in life. Sometimes we get so caught up in life and living, we see what's happening here right in front of our faces. We don't see the big picture. We're too nearsighted. We need to be more farsighted. The greater life, the hope of heaven, it can get into our blind spot, and we mustn't let that happen. Be grateful, be hopeful. One more thing, be faithful. Be faithful. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, 
He searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. So Paul's charge to Timothy to be faithful here included a word of commission and a word of, of commendation. First, there's a word of commission. Paul's instruction to Timothy here almost has the feel of a warning. Keep the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Sound teaching was a good deposit needed to be protected, to be propagated. And this impresses on me that having a literate Christian faith matters, knowing what you believe, knowing why you believe it. Albert Moeller recently wrote about the scandal of biblical illiteracy, and he cites research revealing, revealing that fewer than half of adults can name the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples by name. According to George Barna, 60% of Americans can't even name five of the Ten Commandments. And he said, no wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. The bottom line, increasingly, people are biblically illiterate. There was some pretty funny stuff that was a part of that survey. 12% of people surveyed believe Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Almost half believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife and that they lived happily ever after. That's a problem. A considerable number indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham, so we're in real trouble. <laughs> and friends, it's not going to change until we realign our values. As long as we read the newspaper daily and we read the Word of God sporadically, as long as we watch six hours of television a day and struggle to find ten minutes a day for devotions, as long as we prefer Fifty Shades of Grey to the 66 books of the Bible, as long as we care more about keeping up with the Kardashians than we do keeping our minds stayed on Him. As long as we're more interested in 60 minutes on Sunday night than 60 minutes of worship on Saturday night or Sunday morning, we'll continue to be biblically illiterate. Keep the sound teaching. Guard the good deposit. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. You cannot do that on autopilot. That has to be intentional. Be determined to go to the next level in your biblical literacy. I'm so proud of the men and women who are a part of our small group Bible studies, who are a part of our classes on Sunday morning, who are a part of our Monday night support groups, part of our Bible study fellowship for men and women and our men's fraternity. And let me just say this. Your faithfulness as a Christian is linked to the soundness of the biblical teaching you're getting. And that's why, if you come to this church, you're going to hear sermons that are loaded with Bible references because the Word of God is living and active, and it'll change your life for the better. And the more you're exposed to it, the more of it you hide in your heart, it will keep you from being ashamed. It will help you to stand for Jesus on dark days. Well, Paul closes chapter 1 with the commendation of a man named Onesiphorus who demonstrated a faithful friendship to Paul. 
encouraging him even while he was in prison. This is one man who did not forget about Paul when he was in prison. He apparently did not know that Paul had been locked up because he searched all over the city of Rome until he found him. And it was clearly the consistent practice of Onesiphorus to refresh Paul. And Proverbs 11.25 says, The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. So one of the best ways to strengthen your own faithfulness is to serve others, refresh others, encourage others. There are some people who are a black hole when it comes to their own encouragement. They expect everybody to speak to them, give them attention, ask them how they are doing. What about turning that around and dispensing it to others? If you discipline yourself to do this as a way of life, it'll keep you faithful as a Christ follower even during discouraging seasons. If you are the wellspring of encouragement and blessing for others, it's going to elevate you. I can tell you from firsthand experience that any form of encouragement that passes between Christians or that is extended to a Christian leader stimulates our own faithfulness. A spoken word, an email, a text, a card, a letter, a gift not only refreshes them, but it will also refresh you. You may remember a few years back a story in the news called the Miracle of Q Creek, it was the account of nine miners trapped for three days, 240 feet underground in a water-filled mine shaft. And they decided early on that they were either going to live or die as a group. And the 55-degree water threatened to kill them slowly by hypothermia. So according to the report, when one would get cold, the other eight would huddle around him to warm him up. Miner Harry Mayhew told reporters after he was released from the Somerset Hospital, if one guy got down, the rest of us pulled him up together. And someone else would feel weak, we would all help him get strong. That's how we survived. And friends, that is a picture of the church. If you're facing difficulty, if the world seems to conspire against you, you just remember, it's always too soon to give up. Do what Paul did. He was not ashamed. He didn't curl up in a fetal position in one corner of a Roman dungeon. He stood up. He stood up for Jesus by being grateful, by being hopeful, by being faithful until death. Let's learn from his example. Let's imitate his faith. Let's make this church a place where people will experience gratitude and hope and faithfulness. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father God, I thank you for your word. There's just no book like it, Father. The, the depth of insight from the Apostle Paul to Timothy that we get to overhear and benefit from. So many good takeaways for us this morning. So many good things to live out 
throughout this coming week. Lord, we pray we would be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.